When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben, you are you, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. Let's travel back in time briefly for a second. Uh, Can I do my Wayne's World ripoff? Please do. Perfect, yeah. Yeah, 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 we're there now. Cool. We're there. We're there. Uh, we're, uh, we're near LJ, Georgia, several months back, when the three of us, along with our compatriot Christopher Hasiotis, traveled to see... Expedition Bigfoot. With an exclamation mark. Do you remember? Do you oh, remember, guys? Wow. How could I forget? And if you were not lucky enough to be with us when we made that first expedition to Expedition Bigfoot, uh, never fear because we made a documentary, right? A short documentary mm-hmm. available for free on Amazon Prime where we interviewed the creator of Expedition Bigfoot, David Becerra himself. That's correct. Man, he told us some incredible stories. I mean, some of that stuff about Bigfoot going across the highway and truckers seeing it, Bigfoot shimmering in and out. It was incredible stuff. Again, if you haven't seen it, go there now. And it was sort of like a shallow, sort of a toe dip into the Bigfoot waters. But today we are lucky enough to have the very same David Becerra in the studio with us to take a deep 
dive into said waters. Hello. How are you today, sir? I'm great. Great to be back with you. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for coming because one of the things that uh, a lot of folks wrote to us about after they saw the documentary is they asked us where the podcast was going to be. Yes. Where was, uh, where was the audio version of this? So we want to thank you so much for taking the time to come talk with us and our audience today. Uh, we have a couple of questions for you and mainly what we'd like to do is, uh, learn more about your story, learn more about your quest, learn more about Expedition Bigfoot. And I guess the most, uh, the, the most logical place to start is, uh, if no one had ever heard of Bigfoot or Yeti or an abominable snowman. Skunk ape. Or skunk ape. Yeah. Uh, and they asked you, what is Bigfoot? What would you say? Bigfoot has been here for a long time. It'd be very difficult, I think, at this point to find somebody that had not heard about him. But uh, I could answer your questions by saying you could pick up about any book on folklore in your local community. I can almost guarantee you that a Bigfoot-like creature is going to pop up in there. They're really all over every small town. They've been writing about them since their late 1800s easily. You can find them in all kinds of books. But it's any hairy hominid that uh, roams North America and every continent on the planet. You can find they all have different names for them. They've been writing about them for hundreds of years. You can find them in artwork from the uh, early European period. The Germans, uh, French, had all kinds of wood carvings depicting the wild man. So they've been here for a very long time. It's probably going to be pretty hard to find somebody that hasn't heard about the big hairy man of the woods. Aren't there even Native American uh, sculptures and masks that were made of a creature of this sort? Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's funny when you look at a, it's the only mask you look at in Native American art that always has pursed lips. When you see a, a mask with pursed lips, it's almost always going to be a Sasquatch or the hairy type creature because they always spoke of these things making strange whooping sounds or howling sounds. So almost every time you see the face mask of a Sasquatch, it'll have pursed lips. So these organisms, despite being considered cryptids, right, uh, or unidentified animals by a, a a lot of the academy, for lack of a better word, uh, these organisms have been uh, acknowledged or described in uh, not just folklore, but anecdotes and stories going back across multiple cultures and continents. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, the Himalayas uh, have been talking about them. Every continent has them. I think if people ever really delved, it took an hour, actually 30 minutes out of the day, because everything is so available on Google and on the Internet now. If you just typed, simply typed in Bigfoots of the World, You'd be there for two days reading that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, trust me, you will, especially if you're about to make a documentary about Bigfoot. <laughs> oh, wow, it's a rabbit hole. So many um, zoologists or biologists or cryptozoologists tend to describe creatures or organisms in terms of their diet or, you know, like the, almost like the specs of the creature, like the diet, uh, the behavior, which I think will be a big part of this interview and, um, the, the physical range or territory. Is there, is there any information that you have encountered regarding diet or range? The diet closely resembles that of a grizzly bear or a black bear. Um, I think that's how they've managed to narrow 
or a best guesstimate the uh, population, which would be a minimum of 3,500 up to about 10,000 in North America alone, because we figure with their size, their metabolism would be similar to that of a bear, which would require approximately 10,000 calories a day. They're prevalent all over the coastline of the United States, but the only place you would see much less reports of them would be in the desert and in the uh, in the Midwest of the United States. Okay, the flatlands. Hmm. I got a question for you. So you talk about how their metabolism is similar to a bear and their stature would be similar to a bear. How do you discount the notion that maybe people that say they were seeing a Bigfoot weren't seeing some other creature like a bear that can stand on two legs? Oh, I'm sure a few of the sightings that people that that think they saw Bigfoot probably was a bear because a bear can't stand on two feet. And I think uh, somebody from the city or somebody that isn't familiar with bears could get that uh, could be mixed up like that. But when a hunter who's hunting bears reports seeing one, um, I'm quite sure that he knows the difference between a standing bear and uh, an eight or nine or 10 foot long Sasquatch. Uh, bears have very short arms when they're standing. Uh, Sasquatch, when they stand up, their hands uh, hang below their knees. And uh, Sasquatch has a very strange, very unique form of locomotion. They can run incredibly fast on two legs, and then they can transition to four legs and run even faster. And as far as I know, I know of no other animal that can transition from quadruped to biped and then back down again. Talk a little bit about some of the more let's say, mystical abilities, I guess, or more um, supernatural abilities that have been ascribed to some Bigfoot sightings. Uh, you mentioned things like teleportation even or some sort of psychic abilities to manipulate things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, now, I've personally never experienced any of these things before, but I do not discount them just because I have not experienced them. I've stood in front of some wonderfully honest sincere witnesses some of them even though the event happened years before they start to relive it and they'll start to cry um it's it's just amazing when you start to relive that kind of fear you can see it it's funny one of the indian legends about the sasquatch was when these young sasquatch had become adults that uh their test was they had to stand in front or run in front of somebody walking on a trail and wave their arms in front of that person, whether it be a hiker or a traveler, and that person could not see them. That was that was a right of adulthood. That's when you could do that, you were graduated in adulthood, and that's an old Indian legend. Like a camouflage of sorts? I, I've seen some videos online that supposedly are some kind of creature that is blending in. Like the Predator. I mean, very, very much like you would see from the movie The Predator. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there are creatures that do... Something like that in nature that we know of and have been cataloged. Um, it, I don't know of any, I know, I, I don't know of any ape. I don't know of any hominid that could do that. But, you know, who's to say that, uh, biology doesn't exist? Well, that, exactly. There's the cuttlefish and the octopus can both mimic their surroundings. They change the structure and the texture of their skin and they use the, uh, they can change the pigment, the color to exactly match the background which is really all these things are doing. They're not really disappearing. I mean, I've had people say they do disappear, but I'm, nobody has any proof of that. But people do say that they mimic their surroundings. We can almost see through them unless they're moving. When they're moving, you can see them. So there is there is some science behind the generality that these things can um, mimic their surroundings and you can't see them. But um, there's a lot of good people that there's, and there's a few good 
videos out now where people have got some of this behavior. So what you're actually looking at is is something moving in the woods, and when it stops, it's almost invisible. When it starts to walk again, you can clearly see a bipedal creature walking, and it's just sort of bending the light. So you're not getting a clear, exact view of what's behind it, but it's pretty darn close. But like I said, when they stand still, invisible, but when they move, you can see them. That's interesting because I, full disclosure, I am not a biologist, uh, so <laughs> I don't want to get too, too deep into this, but um, it's fascinating that you bring up the abilities of uh, an octopus or a cuttlefish because the the cells that manipulate coloration on those creatures are called chromatophores. And I think, I don't know of any mammal that has chromatophores. I think the coloration carrying cells are melanocytes, which is about all I know as an untrained, <laughs> well, <laughs> as, as an armchair biologist. Trying to, in in my head, when I'm thinking about that, it would be akin to the skin cells, I want to say, on a mammal. Which, you know, if you've got a lot of hair around that skin, it's hard for me to fathom being able to camouflage the hair itself unless mm. they also have some kind of specialized cells on them. Um, yeah, that's fascinating, Ben. We we also, um, before we get, as you can tell, we have a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, We have no, <laughs> no dearth of questions here. But one of the things that um, we really wanted to explore with you today is your inspiration for creating this museum. The thing that got us, I think, when we first, well, before we even got into the door, you know, where there, there's the setups with this uh, this very adventurous music playing. This, kind of on a porch as you're walking in. And, and it's cinematic, uh, and it's compelling, and it sort of uh, immersed us instantly, and it made us wonder, like, from the jump, what inspired you? When I was 12 years old, I went and saw that movie, like so many other folks did, The Legend of Boggy Creek. Charles Pierce, that was actually the first film he'd ever made. And um, I think it grossed like $26 million, which is practically I've heard of, uh, concerning what a shoestring budget was. He didn't even have to pay actors. He used <laughs> mostly the witnesses. I think that's what made the film so credible, was that a lot of the people portrayed in the film were the actual witness that it happened to. So it wasn't really a movie. It was more of a docudrama. And everything in the in the movie basically happened just the way he laid it out, except for some minor changes. Mm -hmm. So I, after, my brother and after we saw that movie, I think we were really moved because the building was based on a true story. And uh, the more we thought about it, the more amazed I was. I was growing up in Florida. We had the Everglades just outside of us. My dad used to take us uh, airboating and whatnot. I just thought, how bizarre. I mean, it, those things could be in the Everglades because it's so similar to what Arkansas is like, the swamps in Arkansas. Hmm. So we just consumed everything we could as children. And um, I mean, everything, every TV show, every article um, over the years. So um, that was my inspiration was that movie, Charles B. Pierce. And he really did me a favor because here's this fella made this movie, which if he would have told anybody he was making, they would have said, my God, you're wasting your money and your time. Mm -hmm. And here this guy makes it his first movie. And it's a huge box office success because the, I think the, People were lined up to see this movie. There's some sort of very built-in curiosity about these creatures that most people wouldn't even uh, consciously uh, acknowledge. But if you you put a movie up like that, or it touches something, and I think so, there is a there is an innate curiosity about these. People just want to know. 
just to jump in on the the curiosity and the the thought of a Bigfoot, I I think somewhere it taps into the fear of perhaps not being the apex predator that humans are currently on the planet, that there is something bigger out there than us, stronger than us, um, that maybe has abilities beyond what we can do that we maybe couldn't even fight off. And you know what's interesting about that is that the, sure, over the, um, over like the global statistic view, uh, man is the most successful apex predator in, I guess, terms of numbers. But in certain regions of the world, for instance, uh, far eastern Siberia being one, uh, man is not the apex predator because it, tigers are still around. Yeah, but you still have technology. So like you, yeah, a if it person works. could, yeah. Okay, you're right. All right. <laughs> but I, you know, I think that's an interesting perspective and I think it's valuable for this because it's very easy for, uh, it's very easy for our species to exist in sort of a bubble. You know what I mean? Most people, uh, and this, uh, myself included, most people are not out hunting the food they eat, right? They're going to a grocery store and, most people are, as a result, that's just one example, most people are a little bit further and further detached from uh, the natural world, you know. So I, I always thought it was fascinating when when people would say, you know, when people would talk about apex predators. But it sounds like, Mr. Bikar, it sounds like you're saying that uh, a Bigfoot would not necessarily be a predatory creature, Right, like it's uh, because if it has the diet of a bear, it's omnivorous, right? It would be omnivorous for sure, but uh, you can't define these creatures by um, normal zoological terms and classifications. I've heard stories of um, there's one in particular story a fellow was hunting for a hog from a tree stand, and he could see this family of hogs come under his stand, probably seventy five, eighty yards away. He said, "Oh, I'm going to get me, I'm going to get me a nice." a nice sow or maybe a nice little piglet. And as he's watching these things, he's getting ready for a shot. And then you see something jump to a tree off to the left and it jumps to another tree. And now he's not watching the, pig, the pigs anymore. He's watching this big, hairy shape jump from tree to tree. It wasn't walking. It was jumping from tree to tree, hiding behind the tree. Finally, he leapt into the middle of these, grabbed a great big boar hog by the leg, bashed it against a tree, then grabbed another one with the other hand and stuffed it under his arm. So here's got a live one squealing under his arm. He's got a big boar that he just beat to death, sticks it under his other arm, and then turns around and looks at this guy in the tree as if that's how you hunt pigs, mine. <laughs> so you see how it kind of mixed, it's, it's, it's all mixed up. It Ooh. just doesn't hardly make any sense. There's stories after stories like that where these things know you're in a tree stand or they'll know you're hunting and they'll just kind of push your buttons. So, um, yeah, I mean, this could go on and on with very strange behavior mm -hmm. that is not just doesn't go along with our classifications. So in the in the uh, in the museum, one thing that uh, we all noticed and spent a lot of time on is that uh, are, are the, the wealth of anecdotes, right? The wealth of uh witness testimonies and there are also uh some recreated scenes right in the museum and i was wondering if you could tell us in the audience a little bit more about what can be found in the museum 
You know, that's a great question because it, like some museums, they will, they're going to present things to you in one specific idea or some fashion. And I work, we, we work hard not to do that. We're, we're, I want to present everything to you. I'm just going to lay it out in front of you because these creatures and their behavior are so complex. I'm getting ready to add uh, six more exhibits back in the conference room and I'm making sure to mix them up so that you're not just seeing a hair sample. We're trying to present behavior to you that makes you really think, wow, these things, they just, they just don't act like an animal. Some of it's a little disturbing. Some is a little scary. Um, I don't have anything in there where they're hurting people. I'll tell you, I'll, I'll just, I'll kind of cheat. And I'm going to tell you that one of these I'm working on this is a fellow out in Falk, Arkansas. And, um, he had a 120 pound Corsi dog. I mean, if it's sort of like a, uh, pit bull on steroids. Okay. So this is just tough, tough. These things can take a bear down. And, uh, this dog of his was, had just had babies, had just had puppies. He lives out in very close to the swamp, very far out, out of town. And um, he had a, working in his backyard, went to, and here's a growl coming from the swamp. And his little dog, this 120-pound horse, she bows all up. She's getting ready to grab the sink, but she knows she's got puppies in this little pen behind her. So uh, this gentleman has all kinds of Bigfoot. He's already seen two Bigfoots um, in the area over the years. Lived there, raised there his whole life. So he ends up leaving, going to town. Him and his wife have to run to town to get something. The dog goes back in her pen. He goes to town. He comes back a few hours later, just before dark. He said, as soon as I pulled into my into my driveway, I knew that something was wrong. He said, I, I couldn't put my finger up, but I knew something was wrong. So I got out of my car, went right to, my, right to this little area, 10 by 10 metal shed that I had built for the dog. And something had barged its way, just tore right through the galvanized steel grab my 120 pound dog that is meaner than snot this she is so mean grabbed it by her rear right leg and beat her against a tree on both sides until all her bones were sticking out it actually ripped her rear quarter almost completely out oh man and then of course it had stomped all her puppies to death too so whatever it was didn't eat her it just beat her against a tree five to six feet up in a tree i don't know what in the world is going to do that i don't know any bear or a human that's going to do that but it, it's one of those, I'm getting ready to go out there and get a piece of this, of this pen to display. It's quite possible that the way we're looking at it was a horrible, mean act. Maybe this Bigfoot had a child in the area and was not able to leave. And in this, and this dog, she wasn't penned up. She was only in the pen to take care of her puppies, but she was free to roam during the day. Mm-hmm. It's quite possible that this Bigfoot or whatever it was, was a purely instinctual protective behavior. So we don't understand it. But it's one of those things I'm going to ready to go out. I'm going to get a piece of this gate. It's going to be mounted up there with the story. So it's a little disturbing, but it's a complex story. And mm-hmm. I think I would be cheating people if I just if I just laid it out to you as some sort of a fairy tale. It's not a fairy tale. And it, and it makes people think. Uh, there's I have lots of other exhibits coming. I don't want to tell you. I want you to come in and see them because they're extremely surprising. Um, but that, that's the kind of stuff that we like the people to. We want the, We want those gears rolling. Well, I mean, this is an interesting jumping off point where we see Bigfoot so much in pop culture. Obviously, one use of 
the mythology is in horror movies where you have like a stalkerish Bigfoot that's like killing teens at a summer camp and a la Jason Voorhees or something like that. And there's tons of super schlocky movies. Uh, Boggy Creek, there were several sequels and then there are obviously ones that are more focusing on Bigfoot as some sort of like, you know, murderous creature. Um, but it seems to me like you feel like it's a much more compassionate, potentially compassionate, like human-like creature that protects its young and isn't necessarily out to overtly harm anybody unless it's in- involving, you know, protecting its family. Oh, right. Um, uh, a good friend of mine, Mark DeWorth, who's an Ohio investigator for the BFRO, he published a, a report not too long ago about a, a gentleman who's just retired from the bar. He's a lawyer. And um, he never came out with a story until after he retired, for obvious reasons. And when he was camping with his family in Kentucky, when he was about six, seven years old, he became separated from his family out in the woods. And he was crying, stumbling around, trying to get back to the campsite. And he said, a giant hairy ape woman picked me up, carried me back to the campsite. My parents weren't there. They were out in the woods looking for me. And he says that this, I can't remember the exact, if this thing howled or it screamed, but the, but that's, she dropped him off at that campsite and the parents came running back and he was there. And he said, I told my parents that it was a giant hairy ape one pit picked me up and carried me, brought me back here. And they all said, well, it must have been a bear. He always said, no, mommy, it was not a bear. So he kept that story to himself until after he retired. He went on record, even though he was very young saying that he remembers exactly what it looked like and what it smelled like. It was not a bear. It was a giant hairy woman that actually saved him. So again, here's another example, two complete opposite sides of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just another way, uh, just another reason that when a lot of people get into this, mm-hmm. you just can't walk away from it. It's just the greatest mystery. And the heart, the more you dig, the more complex it gets. You never really get a whole lot more answers where you can nail it down. It just gets more interesting. And speaking of digging, speaking of vocalizations, noises, we are going to continue exploring Bigfoot with David Picara, the creator of Expedition Bigfoot, after a word from our sponsor. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 Two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. 
Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with David Becerra of Expedition Bigfoot, the curator and creator of the museum. Now, David, I want to get into something that is highlighted at the museum, and it's called the Sierra Sounds. And let's talk about what exactly that is. So Ron Moorhead spent three years, uh, he's an entrepreneur out in uh, uh, Northern California, and he used to go hunting with these gentlemen way out in this remote area in the Sierras. Couldn't drive to it. You had to you had to take horseback for miles and miles through this very treacherous trail to get up to this area where they had a small little, it was not even a shack. They just took a bunch of deadfall and stacked it up and kind of made like a little shelter to get them out of the, to get them out of the weather. And they would spend a week there hunting. They had a little camp there. Every time they come, they bring a little bit more, a little bit more. They had a little camp where they could cook up and they would hunt deer. And uh, it was like a kind of guy's getaway. It wasn't very big. I'll bet the shack probably wasn't more than 10 by 10. It was just a little lean-to, really. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's like a little wooden box with like a ladder kind of looking yep. thing on the side or like a hatch. Yep. And just a big log. They'd roll out of the way to get in. And then to shut it, they just roll it back into place. And uh, after a few years, uh, these fellas started hearing some very strange noises and vocalizations coming. Something was coming into the camp, rattling the pots around, and then they started finding some very strange footprints. Finally, they realized what probably was going on. So they had contacted a fellow named Al Barry, who was a reporter uh, for one of the local newspapers there. And Al, they told Al the story, and he was like, "This is re- these guys are hoaxing. 
this can't be really happening. There's just no way. He said, I'll go, but I'm just, I know they're just jerking me around. So he brought the top of the line Sony recording equipment. They get out there, they set up, he runs, I think he ran the, the microphone out to some food, some 70 or 80 feet away from the, from the shack. And uh, I'll be darned if he didn't spend a couple of days recording these things. It's funny when you listen to them, when you listen to the sounds, you can get the, the, the DVDs available at from Ron Moorhead from his website. Actually, let's do some of that right now. There are a few available on YouTube. Let's hear some oh, of great. this. It's like you first hear it and my, my, my mind immediately goes to it's some sort of like turkey pig hybrid thing, but then it starts doing something completely different yeah. and goes into these vocalizations that are distinctly human and the kinds of things you could only make by opening and closing your mouth in a certain shape, you know, and it's very otherworldly. I mean, I tend to, you know, be a little bit skeptical about some of this kind of stuff, but man, that is a compelling sounding recording. Mm -hmm. I have not heard anything like that. It kind of gives me shivers. For me, it's the quality, like you were saying, David, that it makes me, it makes me feel iffy about it because it sounds so good. It sounds like it's so close to where whatever is being, you know, whatever microphone they're using. It sounds like it's pretty darn close. It's not up on a ridge or something and you're like shooting way down there unless you've got some in, like really, really incredible equipment. So what you just heard, ladies and gentlemen, as, uh, as David was describing are the, Famous Sierra sounds, largely considered uh, by many people investigating Bigfoot to be some of the strongest evidence, right? Strongest audio evidence. Sure. And, and just face value, I think you can hear it and you realize it's something very strange. But uh, there's a nice gentleman by the name of uh, Scott Nelson out in um, Minnesota, I believe, whose son was doing a high school report on the Sierra sounds. And he's a retired Navy cryptolinguist. So that's what he did. He used to sit in submarines off the coast of Russia and China and eavesdrop in their conversations. He'd have to pick up little pieces of it and form whole sentences because sometimes they go in and out. So I don't know how many different languages he speaks, but he's an expert. And uh, he's in the other room working on something, and he hears his son playing these sounds on his computer. He comes and says, what are you listening to? He says, oh, this is something called Sierra Sounds. Supposedly Bigfoot's howling at each other. He says, play that again. He just happened to be in the right place at the right time. He says, play it again, son. Plays again. He says, let, let me see that. Pulls it in front of me, starts playing it over and over. And he says, that's language. Those, that, these things aren't growling at each other. He said, he said, he ran him through a filter, slowed him down. He says, my God, these things, they have their own language. So here this poor guy goes from being totally disuninterested third party, just happened to be when there when his son was playing with it, listening to it on his computer. He wrote a whole book, our whole series of papers on this language. He can actually repeat some of these words, almost like you're hearing it. He says, I have no idea what I'm saying. I'm just repeating. But he says he had to slow them down to 50% just so he could say the words. These things actually speak twice as fast as we can speak. So um, so here you have a Navy cryptolinguist saying, who's a specialist, says, 
this isn't sounds. These are language. It makes me think of some stuff you'd hear in like Star Wars, for example, where you've got characters that have this sort of nonsensical sounding language, but mm. there are distinct like phonemes and kind of word yeah. patterns and shapes or whatever, and uh, specifically patterns. And you can hear that in the recording that we just played where it, it's not nonsense there's a sort of rhyme and reason to it especially once it gets going and starts getting into the more of those guttural tones and there's emotion in it too i find like it does it does not sound completely bereft of any kind of feeling it's got this like kind of quality of like really trying to communicate to it whether or not you understand the language or not i think you get that sense i think the mic i'm pretty sure that at some points the mic was sitting over a pile of leftover food oh so what you're hearing a lot of is these things arguing over who gets what Wow. Mm. And this brings up something else that we wanted to ask you about on air, because in our original conversations, you talked about some of the long-distance communication methods that uh, these life forms would use, specifically knocking on wood. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So a lot of the BFRO members, a lot of Bigfooters now are, are employing uh, wood knocking techniques because when these things are out in the woods, you hear with sounds like wood knocks being associated with them. So there's all kinds of theories floating around. One of them is maybe these things doing wood knocks when they, when they, uh, sense a human being. Mm. Which, so which, when we're doing wood knocks, we're defeating our own purpose. <laughs> okay, so, which is a pretty ironic <laughs> theory. And I'm, I'm almost to the point where I think it's got some validity to it. So, uh, yeah. So, and some people think they do it, these wood knocks to echolocate each other. Hey, I'm over here. They do a wood knock over. I'm over here. A third one over here. Sometimes they think they sound like they're doing a rock clacks. And some folks have actually observed them making these sounds with their mouth. So we think they're doing wood knocks, but they're actually making these sounds with their mouth. They're amazing. The sounds, the mimic things they can mimic. It's very possible. That's exactly what's going on. Because if you do a wood knock, if you're in the woods and it's two o'clock more, and I have this stick in my hand, I do a good clear wood knock. How in the world can I get a reply wood knock within two seconds? I would dare anybody stand out in the woods, find me a stick and make a wood knock. They're almost all rotten. I've done it before. I remember walking out the woods. How they gonna do a wood knock? Oh, this is no good. This is oh nope. This one's and smack it for. And I think I thought to myself one time, my goodness. How can they be doing this? Because I can't even find us. It might take me seven or eight minutes to find something well enough. And then I got to break it off because it's 10 feet long. I got to make a club out of it. So there's definitely some validity to that theory where these things are making that's those sounds with their mouth. So one of the other big questions that people would have if they're, if they're coming into this, uh, from, you know, square one would be, uh, we would go back to the idea of like physical evidence, right? So one of the big questions would be if there are creatures this large from a population in North America of 3,500 to 10,000, uh, if, if there are that many, then one of the questions would be where, where are bones? You know, where's fecal matter? Um, where are evidence of, for instance, like, um, gorillas tend to make nests, right? Uh, so one of the questions that people have asked us before is where, what happens to this stuff or does this stuff exist? You know, like, is there, is there something there to find? What a great question. Cause it's something that uh, serious Bigfooters ask themselves probably in private. Why am I not finding more stuff? 
So the people that come into the museum and said, I just, I don't, I just, I, you know, I want to believe. I just, I just don't understand how they can. And they're actually, it's a very honest uh, question. We really should be finding more stuff. Why aren't that? We, we've dug up giant skeletons, you know, as they were building the infrastructure of the United States, late 19th century, 20th century. They dug up all kinds of giant skeletons, but they didn't find any giant fossils. Why do we not find these things in the fossil records? If mm. there's thousands of them now, there should be hundreds of thousands of them buried out there. We should be digging up a lot more fossils other than a few teeth from uh, the Gigantopithecus and Gigantopithecus Blackie in China and Russia found in some caves. It's really all we have. We're trying to reconstruct a whole species from a few molar, I think a partial jaw. So yes, there were, we do have evidence of giant apes, but these apes, these Gigantopithecus were never proven to be bipedal. Mm. They were just basically that giant apes that walked around like big monkeys on all fours. These things primarily walk around on, on two feet now. So we're not sure if they're the same thing. They're, what a great question. I don't know. I have my theories as to why we're not finding more stuff. A lot of stuff, a lot of people can walk by things in the woods and not realize what it is. Oh, look, elk are nesting there. Could be Bigfoots. I mean, so a lot of the of their habitat may look like another animal. So unless you're looking for them, you might not recognize what you're seeing. People find structures in the, in the woods all the time. They send us pictures of these big hut-like things. I had a guy come to the museum, told me he found one that was almost 10 feet tall. He could walk in it and not hit his head on it. It's mm. huge. It stunk in there. Um, <laughs> he said he was too af- He was so afraid to go in it. And he was with a friend of his. And he, he sent me pictures, showed me pictures on his phone. And he said nothing was axed. It was everything was broken. And it had all kinds of leaves and matter to make like a little hut out of it. So did a Bigfoot make it? I don't know. But he, he, this guy was convinced. Why would somebody make something so big? That was a lot of effort put in there. And then people find these little structures like... Uh, like teepees, where it really doesn't afford any kind of protection from the elements whatsoever. We wonder if there's some kind of a blind where they hide in them to break up their silhouette for mm-hmm. game on the edge of a game trail. Mm-hmm. But then again, on the other hand, you hear people say these things stink. If I can smell these things at 50 feet, I'm sure a deer is going to smell it and, and, mm-hmm. and avoid them. And, you know, maybe they use these little structures as markers for other Bigfoot. Hey, this is my territory. Mm-hmm. So... But what a great question. We really should be finding more things, uh, overt evidence of their existence out in the woods. They don't farm. They don't use tools. They don't raise anything. These things just live hand to mouth daily, yet they're intelligent. So at some point, some some juncture in a, a Bigfooter's life, you have to start thinking outside the box. And uh, some things that people may have told you in the in the past that you just kind of laughed off, you didn't take it seriously, that it, you start to like go back to some of that stuff. And that's what a lot of researchers are doing now. Not most of them. I'd say a lot of them, not most of them. So it's um, Ron Moorhead, the fellow that wrote the, uh, the Sierra Sounds, he just came up with a brand new book called Quantum Bigfoot, where he discusses quantum physics and string theory and possibility of... Um, of other universes and other realities being just within arm's reach of us, but we are unable to see them. But other things are able to cross through the veil. Well, this comes back to some of the things that we were talking about earlier, where potentially there are there are reports of these creatures having some sort of supernatural abilities. So if that was the case, 
maybe, you know, a la the elders in the Dark Crystal movie. When they die, they just sort of vanish into star stuff and they're gone, you know? I mean, I'm just spitballing here. But, you know, I guess what I'm getting at is like, you know, we find new fossils. That's not a thing that is is beyond the realm of possibility. I just found the a new Homo sapien fossil in Morocco that like lengthened our conception of the timeline of man. But there's a lot of human remains that are found constantly. So to find, to to go so long with these creatures still supposedly existing and not find any, you know, displayable fossil strikes me as a little hmm. odd. So so I have two quick things. Uh, the first one is, have you ever heard of the staircases in the woods theories? Okay, so what if what if these things are somehow coming down from some other dimension with these staircases, you guys. Oh, that's, that's the other thing. Could you explain for, because yeah, I'm sorry, because <laughs> I guess I, I'm familiar with this. Oh, yeah, that's true. And okay. I just, I just nodded, but for, for anyone who isn't familiar, could you break that down? Sure, for sure. Us? Is it like a stairway to heaven? <laughs> okay. So these are accounts of, you know, a story written down by somebody when they were walking through the woods, they saw a staircase in the middle, just of the woods somewhere. And this range is the locations for this range all over the place. And allegedly it's like a staircase that you would find in any house, but it just stops. And it's just in the middle of the woods. It's not like it was attached to another house and it was broken down and it looks like it's broken. It's strangely intact and looks pristine. Um, and you know, the stories, they're, they're, these are fables and the story goes, you know, don't ever go near those things because that's how people disappear in the woods. To go up those staircases. Well, regardless of what you believe, let's be honest, guys. If you're walking in the woods and you see a staircase by itself, why would you walk up it? Just I mean, from from like if it's been in the woods from a physical safety standpoint. My theory is that it's a like a fishing line <clears throat> with a little hook. It's just to get <clears throat> your curiosity up, so you'll try and go in there, but it's a trap. Oh, that sounds like haven't you watched enough horror work? movies to know you never go up the stairs, right? Let alone in the woods, <laughs> right? <laughs> You know, come on. But, but sorry, yeah. my my second thing, mm-hmm. really fast, is just just to throw this out there. Uh, we were talking about finding giant human skeletons. So if you go online and you look into that very much, um, like uh, I did after we had our conversations earlier on, it, it appears that according to skeptical sites like Snopes and other places like that, they say that's completely untrue. What what would you say to somebody who says that? You know, we didn't find. Human, giant human skeletons. Well, I would guess that Snopes is saying we didn't find it because we don't have them. Okay. But we, we know for a fact that, that almost all of these newspaper articles where they dug up these giant, and I have to emphasize these, these were giant human skeletons. Nowhere in the description of these things did they say they were like kind of ape-like or that the arms hung real low. All of the uh, descriptions of them were just giant human skeletons and some with double rows of teeth, which just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And the Smithsonian always, almost all of these end up the same way that they contact the Smithsonian and the Smithsonian says, well, we're going to send somebody down and collect those bones and we're going to take a look at them for you. And then they just evaporated after that. The Smithsonian would never comment on them. They wouldn't say they got them. And there's just so many. It's not one or two or three or four. There's probably 20, 25, 30 in the newspaper. I mean, it's so, I mean, I, I know the newspaper, sometimes they, they print things that aren't true, but mm-hmm. once or twice, maybe about 25, 30 times the That's same subject, I kind of find that hard to believe. So uh, the Smithsonian's definitely got them. And like I tell people, I'm not a, it's possible that these things are hidden from us for a good reason. 
is possible. I, I, I'm not, I can't say that, you know, we, we'd be better if we knew about them. It's possible that we wouldn't. So wouldn't it be ironic that the closer you get to the answer to these creatures, the less people you could tell about them? And wouldn't it be even more ironic that if somebody took you to the side into a dark room and said, oh, I'm going to tell you everything you want to know. And he told you the secret to Bigfoot. And when you walked out of that room, you realized you couldn't tell anybody that you just had to live with it because either the, the answer is too disturbing or it sounds so crazy and you have no proof that they're not going to believe you. So it wouldn't be ironic that once you did have it, there's nobody to tell. You just have to live with it. And that is the perfect setup for the final part of our interview the secret Bigfoot, uh, responding to the more skeptically minded or, or the critics or the people who are saying, what gives? We'll be back after a word from our sponsor. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs, on-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, Podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 2424 Two four to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. So tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back, continuing our Bigfoot discussion with David Bacara of Expedition Bigfoot. My question is, something we haven't discussed in terms of why we're not finding these bones, I was just kind of doing a little Googling, and uh, one perspective is that we don't know how the lifespan of these creatures could be. And if they are some kind of, you know, what's the word I'm looking for, supernatural creatures, maybe they live a really long time. And that's part of why we haven't found any bones. And also, they are apparently, you know, from all accounts, very rare right. creatures. Can you respond to that in some way? I, I don't know anybody that has conventured the lifespan of one of these things. I do know that our reports of old ones that um, were, were seen, somebody was, a fellow was chopping wood in Florida. And uh, this is back in the 40s or 50s. And one had walked out of the woods and it must have been drawn to the sound of wood chopping. And he said, he said, this thing was gray. Well, it wasn't white. It was gray. And it was, <sighs> it was wheezing to catch its breath. It actually had to put its arm on a tree and catch its breath a little bit. And then after a few seconds, it, it started to move on again. So that's about the only proof I have that they get old. Hmm. I wouldn't even venture to guess how old they get. I mean, they have no form of modern medicine that we have. Um, I do know that, um, the reports of the of the females, as soon as the baby's born, they take it down to the nearest creek and wash it off. And some of those creeks are extremely cold, like too cold for us to to uh, to survive in. So it's possible that some of that the mortality rate of the, of the young ones isn't uh, particularly high, or you know, possible they don't live long. Hmm. So that's that's a good question. No, I don't really know. I don't think anybody really knows, but we do know they get old. We do know they start off as babies because there's plenty of reports of, of young ones. It just gets my imagination kind of churning. Like, what if they live hundreds of years mm-hmm. and there being so few of them that could be a potential reason for not finding more remains? And the fact that, you know, the, the woods, the forest have a way of dealing with decomposition and scavengers carry pieces off in various directions. Mm-hmm. It could, I, mean, I don't know. I'm well, just... yeah, this climate has a lot to do with the preservation of any physical remains and forests are hungry, hungry biomes. So it's, it, it takes a lot of consistent, assiduous work to maintain any human structure. Uh, if you leave a body in the forest, I don't want to get too dark, <laughs> but uh, anyone who's checked out our previous episodes on national parks knows that uh, hundreds of people just sort of disappear. We forget how large the woods are in North America on this continent, especially. And 
I, I've got to say before the break, one thing that, that really, uh, got my gears turning, uh, David, when you talked about someone going into a shadowy side room, it always reminds me of one of those things that almost everybody assumes happens when with, with presidents, right? Like, Oh, I'm going to reveal all these classified secrets. I'm going to, uh, approve every FOIA or freedom of information act request. And, uh, and then they get elected. The joke is always, you know, someone sits them down and says, congratulations, Mr. President. Here are the things we will tell you. And if you tell anyone, and then, you know, maybe they slide a picture of Kennedy across the desk or something. And I know that's, I know that can be paranoid or alarmist, but a lot of, a lot of, uh, truth is often told in jest. And we wanted to ask, do, do you think that there is a concerted effort to suppress evidence or, or credible testimony of Bigfoot? Oh, absolutely. Oh, there certainly is. And like I said before, it might be for a good reason. I don't think Bigfoot is for everybody. I've met a lot of folks through my life, a lot of folks that come to the museum. These folks, there is, there are no way ready to accept the reality of a giant hairy hominid roaming our woods. They're impervious for the most part to our small arms that can outrun a car. No, I, I don't think people, most people aren't ready for it. So, um, there's definitely a concerted effort to keep it quiet. There's a lot of folks that uh, professionals, uh, that were threatened to with their job. Do you like working here in this biology department? Yeah, I do. Do you like your paycheck? Yes, I do. Then stop talking about Bigfoot. So, um, Lots, some, sometimes they tiptoe around it. Sometimes they'll go right to them and say, just stop talking about Bigfoot. There's no doubt that there is a concerted effort to keep these things squashed down. But for those that choose to keep digging, I, I think you should continue to do so. I mean, I, I do, and I've got a lot of friends that do. But you have to know in the back of your mind that you're not going to go up on a mountain and scream the answer to Bigfoot to, to all the unwilling people. You're, you're, there's only going to be a very small amount of people that you can share this with. And depending on what that information is, wh- where do you go wh- wh- next with that? I, I don't know where you go next with it. But I, I, I'm venturing to guess that that uh, it's going to be so disturbing that you you can't tell your mother and your father and your brother or sisters. If they're not an in Bigfoot, you're not going to be able to tell them. And you wouldn't want to tell them. Let them have their normal life, go to work, watch the ball games on the weekends, go to the kids' T-ball games. They don't need to know about this stuff. So I've had people call me and tell me, hey, I think I've got a Bigfoot on my property, and I've got a big 30 out 6 I'm a good hunter. If I shoot this thing and I call you, will you help me? We'll bring that. I said, I said, not only do I not want you to call me, I said, lose my email address. Do not call me if you got a body at one of these things, because if you think that the powers of being are let you to drag a dead Bigfoot body out into the world to prove to all these unwilling people they don't want to know Bigfoot's real. Stop. Do You go as far as you want to with Bigfoot. If he's in your yard, if you've got one that you feed, take it as part of, of you. See what you can get out of it. But so don't try to drag the whole world into it because reality, most people, they just don't want to know the reality. And frankly, I can't blame them. So... That to me is a massive conundrum because the one thing that would prove Bigfoot is a body, right? That is the one thing that everyone would be forced to 
say, okay, this thing is real. And every skeptic there's ever been, if you have enough scientists look at the thing, do an autopsy, you know, all the genomic research, realize, wow, this thing is real. But, you know, being afraid of the consequences of finding one of those things, trying to put those two concepts together is, uh, that's fascinating. Do, what do you think, even if you're just spitballing, what do you think that secret is that would be so scary? Like, it, it, do you know or do you think you know? Well, I can say that uh, that at some point in a, in, in a person's life, if you're looking into these, and I'm sure a lot of researchers get to this point, you're gonna you're gonna come to a why in the road. What do you, what are you gonna do? Do you want to get the proof that these things are real, or do you want to go to the left and do you want to learn where they come from, what they're doing here, how many? Why are they here? Why yeah. do they do the things they do? You're either going to have to let the proof thing go. Just let it go, man. Because you know, most of your friends know, you know, the higher ups in the government know it's real. So most of the people that are ready to accept it, they already know Bigfoot's real. So that's already done. It's already done. Mm -hmm. Now let's get on to the real work. Let's find out why they're here. What are they doing here? How do they get here? Why don't we find them in the fossil records? Why, are we, why don't we find more evidence? All these things we discussed. It really leads to something. Say, um, uh, Seth Breedlove just released a new film called The um, Mothman of Point Pleasant. Sweet. So I've been following the Mothman phenomenon because it's very similar to Bigfoot. Not exactly the same, but it's very similar. And uh, I sat and watched some of his witnesses, and, and it's just like watching a Bigfoot witness. They're telling you what they saw. It wasn't a, a fleeting shadow. It was chasing them down in their car. It was flying over their car. These were just regular, honest people telling you, you swear they were telling you Bigfoot story, but they're telling you instead this thing was flying, chasing it with glowing red eyes, which uh, actually Bigfoot's been described as having glowing red eyes, having nothing to do with light. It just mm. makes them glow. So it, it, you have to take some of these creature stories that have gone through our folklore, which maybe aren't folklore, or that have very solid witness reports, evidence, footprints, and you have to start to ask yourself, where in the hell are these things coming from? And you, uh, you arrive to a very unpleasant and unconventional answer that they're not from here. Hmm. They don't live here. There's no Mothman. We don't have a Mothman breeding system thing out in the woods somewhere. These things aren't mating. They don't live here. And in, I'm, I'm starting to entertain the thought that Bigfoots, they're not here all the time. They're just here some of the time. And Ron Moorhead has hit a nail when he talked about these quantum physics about these certain animals being able to cross veils of reality or dimensions. People call it supernatural. Some call it woo. Some call it, um, they have other names for it. But all it really is, is just science we don't understand yet. It's all it is. It's in, in everything is every science that we understand now. At some point in the past, it was, it was woo or supernatural. It was science we didn't understand. And people were afraid of it. People were burned to the stake. Because people were, were talking about things that they understood that the rest of the world didn't. You're a witch. We're burning you, which is pretty much what's going on now with a lot of, of um, professionals talking about Bigfoot. So it's just science we don't understand yet. And um, I don't have my thumb on it yet. I'm still digging. I've got theories. I've got some really good friends, very smart friends that have their theories. And we kind of have this little brain, have this brain mill. We all get together and share ideas and we all learn from each other. But but like I said, I really think that the closer you get to the answer to this, the less people you have to tell. And I, I really appreciate what you say about science we don't understand yet. It's one of uh, 
I think it refers to one of the Arthur C. Clarke quotes that we we find ourselves going back to a time and again on the show, which is um, science past a certain threshold is indistinguishable from magic, you know, to the average person. And to and to um, there's a nice dovetail between what you just said and Noel's earlier uh, questions about lifespan, because if it if it is a life form that is somehow out of phase with reality as we know it, then it may also be encountering time in a different scale. That's just me spitballing. Like, I just, I'm winging it on that one. I completely agree. So, I do want to ask, also, you mentioned mentioned another cryptid, and I wanted to step outside of just the context of Bigfoot into um, the sort of zoology in general. Do you think there are other... Um, quote unquote cryptids that have uh, a, a credible chance or, or a possibility of being real organisms, and if so, which ones? Oh my goodness, there's just so many. Um, I definitely think there's a this flying humanoid phenomenon that's been happening for been reported for past sixty, seventy years. I think there's a lot of validity to that, especially when you sit down. If you get a chance to watch that movie and you hear these people. Like, oh, my God, just that right there. The Mothman scenario? Yes. Flying humanoid creatures. If them things are real, let's face it. (laughs) I mean, that just kicks the barn doors wide open. Well, we actually got to visit the uh, the Mothman Museum uh, in Point Pleasant. Not nearly as impressive as your joint, I have to say. Yeah, but true. A, a nice, shade. modest little spot. Hey, it's not shade, man. It's just true. <laughs> we actually did get to tour the uh, the facility. It was they let us in to buy some merch, but we kind of got to peek back in, and it was just like one little room. But um, really interesting town, and like a similar kind of passion from the guy that ran the store. Um, but uh, there's this bizarre little statue of the Mothman right outside. He looks kind of like a Masters of the Universe action mm-hmm. figure from the 80s yeah, with like a sculpted like 12 pack mm-hmm. and like a weird butt. <laughs> they spent a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, it is it is a very iconic figure there, you know, and it was one of the uh, full disclosure, we were on a road trip. It was this whole situation, but we we couldn't pass up the chance to go to Point Pleasant. And I think I think it's divided. I don't know how, how you felt, but I think there are people who feel it is touristy or ironic, and then there are people who genuinely believe, uh, many of whom are probably longtime residents of Point Pleasant. Because it's like you say, these accounts are very passionate. You know, it's someone's not, they have no reason to make this up other than, to, I mean, it would put them in a, a light they maybe you don't even want to be seen in if they didn't have a reason to actually put it out there. But ultimately... In the end, they're just accounts, right? So that's that's the hard the thing about finding actual proof or uh, physical proof. That's what makes it so difficult. Yeah, I, I think one of the, the great little facets, the great little off stories about the Mothman is when they talk about these men in black. Yes. That were visiting these these uh, people in the men in black visit UFO witnesses. They also visit Bigfoot witnesses. So it doesn't seem to be like a whole armor of these guys. I mean, they always show up two at a time. And um, just recently, some video was released of two of them entering a, a business building, hmm. waiting to talk to a guy. They actually have photographs of them coming in, same thing, all wearing all black. But a lot of good people said these guys were just very strange. Um, they would leave people out in a field when they wouldn't change the story. They just left them there. And so um, just that, that little react about cryptids, I mean, I don't know, are 
been in black cryptids. I don't think they're human. I think they're some kind of weird hybrid. But they're they're definitely here to keep the lid on the Pandora's box. And that's really what it is. It's where the lid is on Pandora's box. And there are people to make sure that lid stays on there. Because you kick that lid off of there, all hell's going to break loose. And I don't think anybody, including me, wants that that to happen. So, um, yeah, you really have to be careful about the about what you say, the kind of information, and who you tell. That's why some people come in, hey, this is my brother Jim from Milwaukee. He thinks this whole thing's ridiculous. Would you convince him that it's not? Um, no. Because <laughs> he likes, he just likes, that's the way he likes it. Or that's the way we're going to leave it. Ben, you mentioned uh, the tourism aspect of, like, that Mothman Museum. And, you know, it it in some ways relates to Expedition Bigfoot as well. It's a destination that gives you a reason to visit a place that you might not visit uh, otherwise. Right. So um, how do you, how do you think, or how does it affect you when you hear people talk about, Oh, that's just a tourist destination or something like that. Well, I'll tell you something. When we, when we first opened up, my wife was prepared for the onslaught of naysayers. Mm -hmm. So she actually wanted me to prompt her and to like, okay, what if they say this, honey? And then what if they see this whole thing? And then what do I say? I say, honey, just, just let's just see what happens when you open the doors. So, and this is not somebody running through all kinds of weird scenarios that aren't going to happen. So well, since we've opened up the doors, let me tell you something. I'll, I'll bet you 99.99% of the people that come in, there, there are already people that they're either on the fence or they think they're real, which completely knocked me and my wife off the floor. We like, are you kidding me? I think maybe two people have come in. We did 24,000 visitors in the first 11 months last year. I bet two people, and I can't remember. I'm just saying, it had to be somebody. I can't remember <laughs> who they are, but somebody had to come in and say, this whole thing is nonsense. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to say at least two, two people came in. But for the most part, people come in and they're excited they love this kind of stuff because there's so few of these things out there anymore. Back in the 50s and 60s, our, our moms and dads were driving around. There's all kinds of neat little roadside attractions. People love that kind of stuff. It could catch you out of the normal humdrum, same, same old thing. So uh, there's so much room. I wish somebody else would open up another one. I wish they opened up another Mothman Museum or a Lizard Man Museum or a UFO Museum. I think... People love that kind of stuff. It's an escape, and it's got to be a family museum. That's why G-rated movies are still the biggest money maker in, in the movie industry. It's always G. They're always the, the biggest money grocers because people want to do something with their family. I want to go somewhere with my mom and my sister and my, my and my two grandkids. So this is this and other opportunities should be made available to go and have fun with the whole family. We don't have to hike up a mountain. Grandma, grandpa, mom, dad. And the grandkids could all do it together. We need more places like this. And places that give homage to, you know, history and folklore and mythology. I, I love, like, any of that kind of stuff that continues those traditions. That's, that's fun. Have you ever heard of a book or TV series called American Gods? Because the three of us have been watching the series. And you never heard of this? No. Okay. It's fantastic. Uh, Neil Gaiman? Gaiman? Gaiman. Gaiman. He's an author. and it's. In this story, one of the concepts that's central to the plot and the theme is that gods exist. In this in this instance, we're talking about everything from Odin to leprechauns and fey people to, yeah, Efreets, all this kind of stuff. It's mythological in a way. But 
One of the main tenets is that they only exist because people believe in them, but they really do exist because people believe in them. And I wonder if Bigfoot in some way is like this because we believe, because, you know, some people believe it is a truly a thing. Is this going way, way no, too out there? No, this is an interesting idea. Pretty wild, man. <laughs> no, I love it. No, no, I mean, it, but, but maybe it's, if we want to ground it more in some sort of pseudo reality, maybe it's about whether or not they choose to come back or not, right? Like, mm. so if we're talking about their blipping in and out of this reality or, you know, this dimension, maybe that is there, there's some, some force that keeps them coming back. And okay. maybe it's some palpable version of what you're talking yeah. about. Or maybe it's just like, they go to wherever they're originally from and say, ah, I just got back from Earth. The search for intelligent life continues. <laughs> <laughs> or they just get bored and they're hanging out here because it's a little different. I, I have one, uh, I have one big question that I think a lot of people have on their mind right now. And I wish we could get to more stuff, but I know it, it, it we may be close to the end of the show. Uh, so the question that if it's okay with you guys, I would like for us to close on is to ask you, what is the future of Bigfoot? What, uh, because we had mentioned before, um, you know, there were concerns from some of your colleagues in the community about the effect of human encroachment upon natural environments. And uh, I, I would like to hear your opinion of where you see both the search for Bigfoot and the organism itself. Well, there's a lot of new shows. There's a couple. There's actually one new show out, Killing Bigfoot. I'm not sure if it's down the air where they want to procure a specimen so they can prove to the world it's real. There's a group out in Texas right now called the Texas Bigfoot Conservancy that's doing the same thing. They're trying to procure a specimen, to shoot and kill one, bring it out, show the whole world it's real. But my personal opinion is that what we should do is just continue what we're doing. Stop. That's the last thing we should do is to prove to the whole world that these things are real. I've said the same thing to my friends. I'm going to, I'm going to say it right now. The first thing that's going to happen, if on the one million out of a thousand chance that this thing ever was ever proven to be real, number one, first thing that's going to happen is they're going to cut off our access to them. No more citizen scientists leave this up to the professionals. So you won't be able to go out in the woods and try to associate with these things or find them or learn more. The government's going to seize control over the whole thing by just saying that they're a protected species. You can't, and you go out in the woods and you're looking for them, you're harassing them. You want to feed them, you're harassing them. You make it wood knocks and rock clacks, you're harassing them, knocking off. So the worst thing you can do is prove to the world the real because the first thing that's going to happen, we won't be able to have access. Right now, we're pretty much unfettered access to them. So the future is just trying to learn more about them. Don't worry about the evidence. Learn more about them because it's extremely complex. So um, hopefully we don't, we're not, we're not going to have any more proving Bigfoot is real TV shows. I think hopefully <laughs> we have a new show that comes out where it's, they're not worried about the proof and about trying to get one on film that, that when you start getting to the behavior, why do they do that? I could not, I left this sound. They left me a dead rabbit or I left out, uh, a bag of apples and left me a mouse wrapped up in leaves or something. Get that stuff on film. I think people would be just as curious about that because uh, trying, spending years trying to get them on film, well, that's a waste of time, man. It's very difficult. Just uh, from, from Killing Bigfoot's, what, their little taglines, the uh, write-up about it says they're determined to stop. Oh, well, first of all, it's the Gulf Coast Bigfoot Organization. 
which you had mentioned the what the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization. Yep. That's one of the other main ones. So these guys want to stop these nuisance Bigfoot from attacking people's homes and property, uh, and including the missions harvesting a specimen. One rogue male will be taken to prove once and for all to science that these creatures exist. A rogue male. They're going to take him down. A rogue. I think a lot of people have been a rogue male at some point in their <laughs> life. David Becerra, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know that we have um, just scratched the surface of something that you have spent decades investigating. And not only do we appreciate your time, but we'd like to ask, uh, one, one thing that we like to do on the show is recommend places where, uh, the people in our audience can go to for more information. And you've cited a couple of books, but is there any other literature or any other resource that you'd like to recommend to people? Tell you what, one of my favorite series of books is by Tom Powell, author Tom Powell is T-H-O-M-P-O-W-E-L-L. He's a long time, one of the, um, founding members of the BFRO. He's done some a lot of very important work. And if you read, he's got three books out right now. Uh, one of my favorites is um, The Locals. God, that just excellent book. Just reading that one book, as a matter of fact, because there's so many, you just can't read them all. I think just reading that one book will give you a uh, honest, forthright, and objective view into the Bigfoot phenomenon. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And where can people... Where can people find more information about uh, you, David Becerra, and Expedition Bigfoot? Well, you can find us on the web at uh, Expedition Bigfoot. We've got an app, a website, and a Facebook page. You can, uh, all people post all kinds of pictures on there. It's funny, a lot of museums don't let people take pictures, but people are so excited. That's the first thing they ask, can we take pictures? I just didn't have the heart to tell them no. <laughs> so I, and, uh, I think people are relieved that, yes, you can come in. There's all kinds of pictures posted on us. So you have an idea. Uh, as to what you can expect. There's nothing scary in there. A lot of kids come in. It's funny because we have the music playing and they get nervous. You can see the trepidation. And as soon as they cross the threshold, like they take two steps and they stop. I go, don't worry. It's just a museum. There's nothing going to scare you back there, but it's extremely interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that one, we took a picture with that one uh black, uh what it was, it was just a... Like a Sasquatch, nine feet tall. Yeah. It was like a nine foot tall black sky watch that is very intimidating. Not scary. Intimidating. Well, it's just, you know, it's got presence. <laughs> right? It, uh, it owns a room. And, so. uh, and where are you guys located? We're on uh, Highway 515, 1934, Highway 515 in Cherry Log, which is about four miles south of Blue Ridge and about eight miles north of Ellijay. And this concludes our episode today, but not our show. We hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and uh, we hope that while you are online, uh, go ahead and check check us out too. Give us a give us <laughs> drop drop us a line, yeah. an online missive of some sort. Um, and you know, if you happen to make it to uh, Expedition Bigfoot, send us some cool selfies with the big uh, hairy man ape thing. And, or with um, David, because you'll be there, yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Oh, and if you have stories about your own uh, inexplicable oh, encounters right. in the wild, we are all ears, or in this case, eyes, because we would be reading the email. Whew, I am whiffing it on the end of this show. <laughs> Somebody step in and save me. Okay, so if you do have any kind of experience 
especially a detailed one, uh, send it to both us and to David at Expedition Bigfoot because there's this, this big wall in the museum that just has personal accounts. A lot of times it'll be a drawing that someone made of their experience, what they saw with a, you know, the whole story written yeah, out. We're, we're a response team too. If somebody has a sighting here, an ongoing sighting in their yard or on their property, we have a team that'll go out there and, and uh, investigate it. Awesome. We're not going to prove it's real because we already know it's real, but we will help you uh, understand it. Fantastic. And uh, you can also check out some of the pictures we took from our trip to the museum on Instagram. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. We're Conspiracy Stuff and Conspiracy Stuff Show on those platforms. Yeah, Conspiracy Stuff Show being the Instagram and Conspiracy Stuff on Facebook and also Twitter, where you can get at us about any bizarre cryptid sightings uh, and if you're not into any of that stuff and you want to just go the old fashioned route the new old fashioned route you can drop us an email we are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.